right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Solly here, got an interview coming here shortly. I believe to be an exclusive interview with Jason Hare. He is the director of the new 30 for 30 that just aired on ESPN called Shark. It is about the 1996 Masters, Greg Norman's collapse there, but also a lot about Greg Norman's career. Listen, I know he's been in the news a lot for a lot of reasons other than his career. Uh, I really enjoyed not only this conversation and look back on his career and, uh, of course, of one of the most famous collapses in golf history, but also the perspective on his playing career and uh, business interests and personality. And uh, it's it's a great look at the shark and a lot of great interviews in that documentary. So I highly recommend you check that out wherever you are able to do so. It'll be on ESPN Plus and I'm sure in a lot of other places uh, where you can uh, catch a replay if you did not already. No Laying Up is brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf, the official rangefinder of NLU. Precision Pro wants you to get your season started right by improving how you manage your way around the course. For us, Precision Pro is essential to the pre-shot routine. It's always surprising to see the difference in the distance you're guessing and the one your rangefinder shoots. Measuring the exact distance to flags, hazards, or layup spots is an easy way for you to save strokes each round. Precision Pro Golf wants to make sure that improving your game is the only thing on your mind. Industry-leading customer service and lifetime battery replacements you know Precision Pro always has your back. So this golf season, take the steps and upgrade your pre-shot routine by adding Precision Pro to your bag. Head to your local Dick Sporting Goods or Golf Galaxy to see their range finders or go to precisionprogolf.com and save $20 with code no laying up. Dial in your distances and take stress out of your game with Precision Pro Golf. Here is Jason Hare. All right, so Jason, I know a lot of people know you from The Last Dance and other uh, sports documentaries you've done and other films you've made, but just curious for our golf-centric audience, what is your, uh, it, what is your golf experience and is, is it intimidating at all making films uh, in the golf space? It's fascinating and thrilling because I'm such a bad golfer that I just, I mean, I have plenty of friends who are good golfers. I took it up only a few years ago. I'm 45 years old, so I became obsessed immediately. I golfed when I was a kid but that I didn't need an escape from anything. And, you know, the idea now of turning my phone off and spending time with three of my buddies and like sipping on cold beers and like competing, but also just like I would golf if there were no golf involved. It was just us driving around in carts. So I do have a long background in golf. And then my family, I come from, you know, a lot of golfers in my family scratch and above um, my cousin is a plus three. So we always, my memories of watching the masters and the U S open, and the PGA and the British in every summer when I was growing up are pretty vivid. So I have a, an extensive background, but my ability does not reflect. That. What about your your knowledge of of Greg Norman? You know, we're talking about your your film that's coming out here. As you're, if you're listening to this, it's already out uh, called Shark. Uh, what what is this your idea to do this? Are you brought this idea to talk about? You know, do do a film on Greg Norman? What is your knowledge about him before? Where would you put your knowledge now? I'm wondering how that process works. Really good friend of mine named Connor Shell um, used to be one of the, the top people in command at ESPN, and he has since left. In the last couple of years, he left and started his own company called Words and Pictures. And as part of that company getting off the ground, he agreed to do a number of 30 for 30s for his old colleagues. And one of them was this doc that they called me about. I was actually at Frederica with uh, my cousin, that plus three guy. 
with him and I came off the 18th green and we were having a beer afterwards and I got a call from Connor saying like, would you be interested in doing a doc about Greg Norman at the 96 masters? He's agreed to come back and play the mat the Augusta and Augusta has agreed to let him play with the same pin placements. And I, I mean, he has a lot of stuff going on, Connor, and I had a lot of stuff going on too, but both of us were laughing on the phone. Like, listen, man, if we can't make something fun out of this, <laughs> and if we can't like treat this as one of the, the perks of the job, then, then what are we doing here? So it was an immediate, yes, no money was discussed. Nothing else was discussed. I just said to Connor, like, yes, I absolutely will do that project. And here we are. Are you well-versed, would you say in, in the Greg Norman story or where does the, where does your process start in terms of researching for this, preparing for this, doing it? interviews with him and telling that story is it a story you've always wanted to tell I know for me personally it is one of my first golf watching memories I think was the 96 Masters it it drilled into my head what choking is and uh, I, I think we've been waiting for a long time for for a deep dive into it like this film and I'm, I'm just wondering what that uh, wh when that starts for you and where you started from what, what basis you were starting from I vividly remember the Larry Mize chip. I was watching that Masters with my dad. It was just he and I in our tiny little uh, sunroom in our house um, with this little 27-inch TV, which back then was like 27-inch color TV with cable. It was like, oh, shit, we're doing well. You're killing um, it. Yeah. So I vividly remember, remember watching that with my dad and knowing how crazy and improbable it was that that guy hit that chip, but certainly not having any idea of... of um, what the masters was at that point. I think I was, I was uh, about to turn 11. So I was like 10 years old and didn't really know. I just, I just remember that day, but also he was so indelible off the course, right? Is that all, everyone had that gear in, in the early to mid nineties, the, the shark gear was everywhere. You saw guys like hackers out on, on public courses. Everyone had those hats on the older guys had those hats on. And then uh, in 96, I vividly remember watching that in college with my roommates uh, on, on that Sunday. Um, so that was always with me. And I always, as, as my career went on, I graduated in 98 and, and started in the business in 99 and always thought that that would make an incredible documentary just to talk to him about that and to see where he, where he came out. Now, this is five years after that, 10 years after that. Now we're, you know, 25, 26 years after so to talk to him about it and to see how he's reconciled it and to see how he confronts it now was something that was an obvious yes. How uh, were you able to spend any time with Norman, I guess, before the project kicked off or, you know, was the first time you sat down with him? Was it with uh, with cameras on? We had a Zoom in the exact place where I'm sitting right now, and they were looking for directors and they offered me up as, as one of the guys who might be doing it. And so he and I discussed things. What I'd be interested in, what he was interested in, what his goals were for the project and, and mine too. And then the night before we did that first interview, I had dinner with him for about three hours. And we just talked about a lot of things, golf related and non-golf related and, and everything else. But that was about it. It wasn't like we were like super close when I sat down with him. What is what's a three hour dinner with Greg Norman like? What are, what are the topics of conversation? Is it, uh, it what, what is the timeline on this as well? Because we'll talk about some of this later as uh, what, what he's been making a lot of headlines in golf for, for some other reasons. But what is the the actual time frame of this The timeline for that was that I was approached about the project in March of 2021. April of 2021 is when we shot at Augusta with him there. You'll see, you know, from the doc, you've seen it or at least the rough cut, the shots of him while he's at Augusta during the Masters. And then a month later 
is when we went back and shot him by himself at the at Augusta. And then we didn't interview him until June of 2021. So it was the night before his shoot that I actually met him in person for the first time because my co-director Thomas Odefelt and producer Matt Chase and, and another producer Marie Margolis went down to Augusta and were running around Augusta literally like sprinting ahead to get him because we didn't have the, the kind of you know camera crew or, or production facilities that CBS has Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We just had two cameras and about six people. And it was like, all right, you can play these nine holes, go out there and you have two hours. So a lot of sprinting around there, which myself as a golf fan, I was so jealous that I couldn't go to that. I was on another project and couldn't go down that day. But I mean, imagine if your job was just to run around an unoccupied Augusta National for the afternoon chasing Greg Norman with the pin placements in the same place they were on Sunday in 1996. It's powerful, man. And it's something that, you know, we, I know maybe 0.01% about filmmaking compared to, compared to someone like yourself, but I, 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 you know, I, I still view things a little differently than I would if I was just a regular sports fan watching it on TV, but just the, the, the powerful nature of when, when Norman walks off the first tee and he's telling the story of, you know, standing right there about Jack Nicholas, you know, putting his arm around him and saying, I hope you're as nervous as I am as Greg's playing in his first masters. Like it, it, uh, it adds a whole nother layer, if I may say to this film about just bringing him back to that spot to relive it and steer into it. Like he it, it was the impression you got that he was an open book and, and willing to, you know, take any possible questions you have ready to relive it. Um, cause he also makes a comment in there that he's never rewatched that round. And I just found it interesting that, uh, he was willing to go through the ringer for this, for something that is not a, not necessarily a vanity project. I give him a lot of credit for going where we wanted to go. I, th I think that any pro athlete has a certain sense of ego. And if you said to them, Hey man, we're not going to do a lot about the 96 masters. We're going to talk about your accomplishments. He probably would have said, I'm fine with that. He's, he's Greg Norman. He's, he's worth half a billion dollars and he is Greg Norman walking around for a reason. He's got that aura about him. But because of that, I give him a tremendous amount of credit and respect for like, for instance, we, we had him watch, as you said, that final round in 96. And he didn't know that that was coming. We didn't specifically discuss this. I think that, that his people had, had conveyed to him, they're going to show you some clips and have you discuss them. But we had everything loaded up. It was really, we weren't going to make him watch all 78 shots of, of Sunday in 96, but, but we, we certainly had those loaded up. And I didn't want to lie to him by showing him some of his accomplishments and then dupe him into all of a sudden now return. It was very clear from the very beginning, like the first clip we showed him was Jim Nance's on-air welcome. Hello, friends, in 1996, whatever that was. And it was here we are and Greg Norman is up by a lot. He's up by six strokes. And this is, you know, it's just a question of is he a 42 long or a 42 regular, I think is what uh, Kenny Maine said. So he knew at that moment what was coming and he could have said, guys, I'm not doing this. He could mm -hmm. have stood up and walked out at any moment or he could have gotten really combative or, or even a little bit defensive, which on TV comes off as a, a lot defensive. I give him a tremendous amount of credit for sitting there and understanding what we were doing and going along with it. And my, my thought always, it wasn't to victimize him and it certainly wasn't to, to, to make fun of him or ridicule him. I always had in the back of my mind, the thought that I think that people, especially in America, in the US, when you screw up, if you own it, people are so willing to forgive you. And whether it's a moral transgression or an athletic transgression or something in between, 
if you screw up and say, yeah, hey, you know what? Hand up. I pushed that thing 40 yards to the right on 18 and I, sh I shouldn't have done it. And, and it still eats me to this day. So I thought he did. I, I give him credit for, for um, acquitting himself really well of sitting there watching these things. It got a little awkward. I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> By the time he went in the water on 12 and he knew what we were doing, I had to skip a couple. Our producer, Matt, had everything queued up. And I think I skipped like he had a bad approach shot on 10 that went wide left. And I skipped that because it was like, I could see he and I had his energy was like, wait, are we going to go through? <laughs> are we doing it all? <laughs> so, but you had to have the missed three footer on 10 or I'm sorry, on 11. You had to have the water on 12. He birdied 13. He was within two strokes when that famous shot where he drops to his knees on 15 and Mrs. Eagle by, I mean, I don't know how the ball didn't go into the hole to this day. It looks like it rolled over the hole, and, which it may have. If he sinks that, they're tied going into 16. And even I said, too, that if you're down two going into 16, you're still in it. Mm -hmm. Anything can happen. This is Augusta. You birdie 16 and creep within one. You get 17 and 18 to go. That. that 18th fairway starts looking a lot more narrow if you're up by one, but it was fascinating just to consider what that place can do to an elite athlete, the aura that that place has. And I'll tell you, that is one of the great rewatches too. And it's painful rewatch the whole, but the whole broadcast is up on YouTube, like all of the masters uh, broadcasts are. And it, it, it you, I guess it's kind of Frank Trichini and the CBS crew knew way ahead of, of you know, they knew who the, what the story was. They had to follow one pairing, basically, you know, for the whole day. And they just linger on the tension the whole time. They linger, they linger. The fa Even Faldo's shot, and I know that's not what this film's about, but Faldo's shot into 13. He spends three or four minutes deciding on what club to hit. And it's just a, a level of tension. And maybe that's what I, – I honestly think, like, this this day is what made me – um, it, it not, not made me a golf fan, but it upped the level of which I was a golf fan because it was just such incredible theater. And, and what I thought uh, a big takeaway I had from, from your film as well was this was not, um, not as much of a freak occurrence as maybe I would have once thought it was the, you did an amazing job of accumulating all of the things that were off from the end of day Saturday, all the way through to basically 16 when he hits it in the water. And, the fidgeting of the club, the regripping of the club, Faldo talking about that. What is that to watch? It, I mean, I'm not a over a shot that's a tight lie in the middle of the fairway. We've all stood over that thing and then thought, like, oh, there's a couple of people watching me. Imagine if you're on. I think that was the the second or I oh know it was the eighth for 24 seconds. Yeah, <laughs> that ball. And that's when Faldo even says, and and, and kudos to Faldo for his candor in in this in this doc too saying i noticed it and that's when i knew that i could capitalize i'm not, i'm very much it's well documented not a huge uh fan of faldo's commentary but he was fantastic in this document at doc i mean his his perspective on things was such i guess it came from a i don't want to call it sympathetic place it was definitely not a a, a taunting thing at all he just seemed to understand what greg was going through on that day and and also he says at the beginning, like he can't believe that Greg would go back there. He says, it's like, why would you yeah. want to go watch a crap movie again? <laughs> I mean, he, he's calling Greg's final round in 96 a crap movie. And he's right. But to see the Faldo that, that we depicted in that doc, which I think is accurate at that point, was the super conservative 
you know, he was the metronome. He was the guy who's had no personality and was just like, he was always lingering, always there. And then he struck when, 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 when it was time to strike, he would strike, he'd lull you into this. And now today to see the Nick Faldo of today with the sideburns and the butterfly collar and the open shirt and the medallion, it's like, he's the dude that people thought that Greg Norman was back then. He's evolved into that. So that, that's a little like subtext that I found fascinating. Yeah. And I'll tell you too, the, the, the Peter Costa story always slays me about uh you know if for for those that maybe haven't watched it or have you know aren't familiar with it i wondered you could tell us that and had you heard that story before uh, before filming this about trakinian about yeah i had never heard that before that was something that he told us for the first time in my research that he had gone into now now a bunch of things had befallen greg from the time that he walked off of 18 on Saturday night until the time that he teed off on Sunday. And I always thought that the big mystery of this doc was going to be, you know, unfolding exactly what happened and what was this moment that no one had ever heard of before. But there wasn't anything that earth shattering. It was a series, according to several people we talked to, and therefore I think the truth, a series of several small things that got into his head. So one of the things was that there was an English writer who said, even you can't fuck this up, Greg. <laughs> Greg was leaving the clubhouse that night. And that seemed to stick in his craw. Another thing was that his wife had arranged for a surprise party of 12 of his friends to be flown up on his private jet from, I believe they were living in Jupiter or somewhere nearby at that point, to Augusta. And Greg heard about that because the pilot called to verify this is the time we're taking off and all that. And he had a fit because it was almost like you're spitting in the face of the golf gods that you yeah. know, planning on winning this thing. And then there was a local guy who Peter Costas, um, not realizing the politics of this thing, thought was off the record. It was Brian Hammonds from the Golf Channel is what they relayed the story to. It was relayed on the local CBS affiliate, yeah. Exactly. So Hammonds said that Costas told him that Peter had noticed some flaws in Greg's swing and specifically his grip that could make this thing a little bit more interesting than you'd expect for someone with a six stroke lead on Sunday. And he reported that. So Drakinian calls uh, Costas into the truck on the morning of, uh, it's 7 a.m. On, on Master Sunday morning. They're far from being on air, but they're still, everyone's like worker bees. You know, they probably hadn't left the, the facility that night and said, did you tell the world that Greg Norman is gonna choke today? And Costas said, no. I said one thing to this one guy and I don't know how it got out. And then he said, well, because Greg Norman just called me and said he wants to put his hands around your throat. <laughs> and Costas kind of like limped out with his tail between his legs and then came back in and said, hey, not for nothing. If that's what Greg Norman is worried about at 7 a.m. on Masters Sunday, then he's, he's in even more trouble than I thought. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach and official fitness wearable of both the PGA and the LPGA tours. You can monitor your recovery, your sleep, your training, and your health with personalized recommendation and coaching feedback with Whoop. Helps you train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all-new 4.0 technology, the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. I absolutely love this thing. I let mine die for a little while, and ever since I got mine recharged, I'm monitoring my health a lot better. I'm monitoring my sleep a lot better. I am encouraged to go to bed. Hey, if you're tired at 8.45, go to sleep. Your Whoop is going to give you a nice recovery number in the morning. It's going to show you exactly how your habits influence your health. I cannot recommend this highly. 
I cannot recommend this product highly enough. The all-new waterproof device is free when you sign up for a Whoop 4.0 membership. And for any new members, if you have six months left of membership on your account, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. And right now, Whoop is offering 15% off when you use code NLU15 at checkout. So go to whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com, enter NLU15 at checkout to save 15% on your purchase. Now back to Jason Hare. You start piecing the puzzle together and it all starts making a whole lot more sense, you know, as to why the guy that shot 63 to open the tournament, uh, then I think a 69 in round two fin- finishes it with a 78. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to it, to be swinging it that well and for have it to go so wrong. If you look at, though, and we went into this, too, in the doc, is that is Greg snake bit or were there things that he put himself in position to be snake bit? So it's one thing to for Larry Mize to hit that shot against you on 11 in the second hole of the playoff. It's another thing to shoot three bogeys on the back nine on final Sunday when you're in the lead. Same with the 86 PGA at uh, Bob Tway holds the bunker shot and Costas again makes the point of, yeah, he shot 40. <laughs> on the back nine. So yeah. it's, if you can imagine, say, a Tiger, if a writer said to Tiger walking out of the clubhouse on Saturday at Augusta, even you couldn't fuck this up. Do you think the Tiger would have done anything except say, fuck you and walk out? <laughs> I don't know if we can swear on this podcast, but like, absolutely. It wouldn't listen, man. Like people are built in different ways and Greg Norman is worth half a billion dollars. And I doubt he has many regrets, but there are things that some people can handle that some other people can't. And golf is a very mental game. And it's no shot against you if that can throw you off your game. But if it can throw you off your game, then you might not win the Masters. Hmm. And if, if an old writer says, even you couldn't fuck this up, and that actually makes you lose a moment of sleep, then maybe it's not meant to be. I'm struggling to marry this marry this point, but I, I would consider, uh, uh, I'm not putting these words in your mouth here, I would consider Norman to be one of the great egomaniacs of golf, as far as the stories I've, the many stories I've heard over the years. And I'm wondering if that is, there, there's a certain bravado that comes with somebody that has an enormous ego and, and always needed to be constantly reminding people of their accomplishments. And I, I, I made a, a note in here to, to even point out that he says, you know, when he was rubbing, he's, he admits he's rubbed people the wrong way for a lot of years out there. And he, he makes a little comment of, oh, well, that's just they're jealous of my accomplishments. And uh, I just found that interesting. It's like, no, man, you might be like rubbing people wrong for the uh, the wrong, a yeah, different reason. But I'm, all that to say, if you have this, you know, carry this very large ego, if someone exposes a little chink in the armor, like some a comment like that, it, it, it almost kind of um, exposes the the facade that is this ego bravado, whatever you're carrying around. And I'm just wondering if uh, I might be overthinking or overanalyzing that, but I'm wondering if you have any perspective. And maybe we both are, because I agree with you. Yeah. Um, I, I think that a lot of it had to do, and, and the stories, especially the stories that I have covered where icons are involved, guys who are seen as alpha males, guys who are seen as, you know, quote unquote, superheroes so much of it comes back to their dad Hmm. and their relationship with their dad. And he always thought that his dad resented that he was this long haired surfer who chose to get into golf and his dad never supported him. And then he made it and he made it. He was always going to prove to his dad that he could make it. And I think that that a lot of times that manifests a little boy and in, in adult clothing, and whether they have tattoos all over them or whether they have long hair or whether they, you know, that acts out in one way or another. 
And that's what I saw there was, was a lot of, I do think that he, it's Darwinian is that you learn to be impenetrable because you have to be, he came out of nowhere at that point, golfing from Australia minus when golfing from Neptune. So he give him the credit that he went, he had the, 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 the vision to go to Europe, to go to Asia, to win a bunch of tournaments, to wait until he came to America until the right time. A lot of like all of these decisions he made correctly because look where he is now. But I do think it always, he always felt like the kid who was being patted on the back by Jack in 81, walking down the first fairway saying like, I hope you're as nervous as I am. I don't know that he ever felt like he belonged at Augusta. Hmm. It was always like, I can't believe that I'm here. So 81, Certainly, I can't believe that I'm here. 86, come all the way back. That's one thing that I didn't know before the making of this doc. I certainly knew that the 86 Masters is, is you know, legend because of Jack Nicholas and what he did in the back nine and what he did to win that tournament. I didn't realize that Greg had gone birdie on 14, 15, 16, 17 and had an opportunity. Par ties it birdie to win. And then fans a four iron 40 yards to the right on his approach after piping his driver. I didn't realize that. Well, that's the Norman story though. Like it is so much greatness that puts you into the position and ultimately ends up in so much failure. Like that is what, and that's what, again, the film does a great job too of, you know, you put that number up on there that says number one in the world for 331 straight weeks. Like that is that's a ridiculous achievement. Right. It was it was cumulative weeks, but it was okay. 331 weeks within the middle of the 90s. So that's still an, an, a phenomenal feat. And by the way, pre-Tiger, number one money winner in PGA Tour history. Yeah. And he played a lot of his events in Europe and Asia <laughs> and still was number one in PGA Tour money pre-Tiger. The other thing that was striking to me is that 96 we see is like almost ancient the Greg Norman 96 collapse. We see that as ancient history. A year later is Tiger's first year. So much changed in those 12 months. I don't know that you can name a sport that had such a seismic shift in one year because the mm -hmm. Tiger era and the Greg Norman era, if you want to call it that, to me are two totally different things. It's almost like they're playing with, you know, Bolotta balls and, and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, persimmon woods and all that. It's, it's that much of a difference. Yeah, no, it. Uh, I think another powerful moment uh, is the side by side shot of Norman hitting a shot into into twelve in twenty twenty one, along with him looking up at the ball in uh, in nineteen ninety six, because that's that's really where where things changed. And you know they got the get, you get the audio in there to say the shot goes over the bunker and uh, the commentary that says you know he, he went at the pin with it. He got, you get it's a different club, it's a different shot if you're aiming over the bunker versus going at that pin, and that's bad decision making commentary from Costas that says the first sign of nerves is bad decision making and the next is execution it uh it really tied everything together um uh, we interviewed Tony Navarro was our second interview of the entire project and there's such a code I actually give Tony credit there's such a code among caddies that like he's not going to sit there and tell us everything he's not going to divulge the conversations he had with Greg he's certainly not going to say you know I told him everything to do it that to me was so enlightening. I would love one day to do some sort of a story about caddies or a caddy that illustrates what it's like to be a caddy on the tour. I mean, I'm the guy that any golf magazine I, I read, I go straight to those like anonymous caddy articles and all that to see what's really going on behind the scenes. So 
Tony was great. Couldn't have been a nicer guy, but by design, just wouldn't give anything up. I saw a little, I don't want to call it a trick at this point, but something I recognized from the last dance was, you know, nor showing Norman watch uh, the, the, the golf and, and the in the specific shots on the tablet. I find that, again, extremely powerful just to see reaction. And, and one sequence in particular was him playing the ninth hole. And he hits the shot, and it's funny, immediately hits the shot. I'm like, ooh, that sounded different. And he points right at it and says, see that right there? Like, that was thin right there. And then you ask the question, you know, of, of, you know, when are you starting to get worried? And he says, that was it. That was an easy golf shot. And that was it right there. Uh, I just, I, I found that, I don't have a question related to that other than I found that to be really good filmmaking. Imagine knowing, I mean, the, the question I think, and I think I stumbled over the question because the interviews at that, that was my third interview with him. And at that point, it had, be, had become a conversation like this. And we're kind of stepping over each other and, and I'm not, reading off a page and trying to read the question perfectly. But my point was like, when did you know yeah. that you were fucked? And, <laughs> and he said right there. And I didn't say when you were fucked, but I said, when did you know that, uh, you know, things were not gonna, and I kind of trailed off and he pointed at the laptop that we had next to him and said right there. And it was that shot that we had been discussing because it was, it's a hundred yard shot. And you're supposed to know if you, especially if you played Augusta one time, let alone, you know, however many times you had played it up until that point, you can't be short with that shot. You're going to end up, it's going to roll back and you're going to end up 40 yards short if you're two yards short. And he was short there. And that's when he said, so imagine the agony of, and Faldo says in the doc, I knew if I could get within three after nine, I had a shot. He was within three after that. And then the wheels really came off because he bogeys 10, 11, and then goes in the water on 12. Imagine the agony of, all you want to do when you're making that turn is make a left to the clubhouse instead of making your right over the 10. But you know you'd feel terrible. And now the crowds are really starting to gather because this thing looks like it's going to be an actual dogfight. I just, that that's the, I had sympathy for him at that moment to say, like, I knew, that's when I knew it was over. Like, oh my God. I remember interviewing Sugar Ray Leonard one time and he had told me that um, there was only two times uh, in his life that he knew that he was coming into the ring and he knew he was going to lose. And he said, you know, if you're mm -hmm. walking into the ring, you know, this is Sugar Ray Leonard. This is one of the first like big interviews that I'd ever done. I was like, I can't believe this guy is telling me. It was so fascinating to me. But as a golfer, you must know too, I don't have it today. And this guy does and I'm defeated. That's why we, we really made a point to say if he had played with Mickelson, maybe history changes. Yep. I think Faldo was like the absolute antithesis of an ideal playing partner for him because Greg wants to congratulate a guy and talk with them and banter with him. Faldo is just thousand yard stare metronome. I think Faldo hit all 18 greens that final round too. I know he shot bogey free 67, but it's just, yeah, that's a, and then, you know, Ian Baker Finch doesn't usually say a whole, you know, uh, you know, doesn't speak as um, make it very pointed statements when he talks on air. He, you know, he's kind of a, he's more of a friendly announcer. And you ask the question of, you know, was was, you know, did it matter? I forget what you asked. You know, would it would it have gone differently if Faldo was not paired with him? He was just definitive. Yes, and that uh, that that so that shows uh, Matt Chase, our producer, who is awesome at all of this, and is another uh, you know golf fanatic who's hovering around a twenty with me. But um, both of us are are huge golfing fans and he's the one who interviewed uh, Ian 
And it was, he didn't even get the question out of his mouth. Yeah, he didn't. I know. And I, and I don't know if the version that you saw, but, but Scott Van Pelt and I agree with him says, I believe history was changed that day. Hmm. If, if a young Phil Mickelson, and this is not the Phil that we've come to know, but if a young Phil Mickelson, who's, who's still really, really good is playing with a veteran Greg Norman on that Sunday, does he give up that lead? I don't believe so. I do believe that history was changed permanently by the fact that Nick Faldo got up and down from behind the green on 18 on Saturday. Hmm. That's what's so fascinating to me about these tournaments is that he goes along with his approach shot and he has to, that's a very difficult screaming down the hill chip that he has to make into that pin. And he gets it within three feet and taps in for par. And that's what gets him that final pairing. Hmm. If he in any way by a millimeter screws up that chip, then we're not having this conversation because Greg Norman's life at that point, it may be worth the documentary, but it's not worth the documentary examining his life through the prism of Augusta. What, uh, you know, I wouldn't paint myself as a big Norman fan yet. At the same time, I felt like he comes across mostly likable in all this. Did you get that impression, you know, from working with him directly on this project? He was nothing but really, really nice to me and to the people who approached him. Like, I think you, you asked me what, what's dinner like with Greg Norman at, in Florida, at least, it's a lot of people approaching him and asking for autographs, asking for pictures. It's my wife's anniversary with me. We're having dinner over there. Could you come say hi? And he was accommodating to every single one of those people. And he was, you know, oftentimes people of that stature, they have a person who is the conduit. And he was he was directly communicating with us at all times and really seemed to enjoy the process. I don't know that he thought that it would come out like this. And that's not to say that I think, I, I sincerely think and I hope that this enhances his legacy when it comes to people thinking that he is a choker or a failure, because he's not, he's objectively not. Now, the Saudi stuff aside, that's a completely different conversation. If you want to talk about Greg Norman, the businessman versus Greg Norman, the golfer, but his golfing legacy is one of the indelible golfers of his generation a two-time major winner and the all-time leading money winner before Tiger. And if that's the, that, that's a fact, all of those things are facts. So I hoped that this thing, and I continue to hope that this thing actually enhances his legacy in golf. The other stuff is, is a different question. I do want to get to some of that, but I've shared a few of my, uh, you know, moments I thought considered to be the most powerful. Anything that we haven't talked about that you would consider, uh, you know, to be some of the, the strongest points in, in the film? I just thought that the, one of the first shots that we had recorded was it fascinated me that Greg Norman, for all of his legacy and all of his history and, and you know, being one of the first names that someone of my generation, I'm 45, would mention if they named golf superstars from their childhood. It says so much about Augusta and the mystique of Augusta that he is standing in the same place that I am, that you are, that any fan who's lucky enough, any patron who's lucky enough to get a pass to watch that day is standing. Greg Norman is there because he came that close to winning a green jacket. But if you're not a winner of a green jacket, you have to stand behind those ropes and you watch a legend like Jack Nicholas in the ceremonial tee off. So our camera was fixed on him at the end of the film as Jack gets the smattering of applause 
he makes a dumb joke. Everybody laughs because he's Jack Nicholas and he knows why they're laughing and they know that he knows why they're laughing. <laughs> it's this moment where it's like you're they're there, that the, you're under the oak tree. It's just history. Jack tees off and we're on Greg and every head swivels to see where Jack's tee shot went, except for Greg's. And he stays on Jack. And part of that is golfing expertise. He probably knows by the sound of it and he knows by Jack's backswing that the thing is piped. And part of it, you... I would be willing to bet my left arm. He's thinking I should be on the other side of these ropes. I could be teeing off with Gary Player and Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas as a legend who is the ceremonial starter of this great tournament. And he came that close. And that's what's, it's the reason why I wanted to do this film is, is the power of one place to shape someone's legacy for better or worse. Yeah. And it's uh it's, it's a, and the butterfly effect, uh, thing in golf is is crazy to think about in the list it's it's not the uh he's not the only name on the list of guys that you know one shot one lip out one lip in are away from you know I mean, Lynn Matisse he, his story of being, being crazy close to winning the Masters is up there Scott Hoke Ed Snead it's uh the list goes on and on and on it's uh anything that uh got left on the cutting room floor that it was especially uh especially hard to cut uh we spent a lot of time with Butch Harmon we went out there with him I mean Harmon was was Greg's swing coach from the early nineties through 96 and beyond. Um, the thing about doing a doc with ESPN, which they're great partners, other partners. Now you don't, it, it's the length of the story is the length of the story. So if it's 80 minutes, if it's 62 minutes, it doesn't matter. ESPN, you have to be 50, 77 or hundred. That's it. Hmm. Cause that's what fits in an hour long or an hour and a half or a two hour window respectively. So there were things that maybe should have been included that weren't, and there were things that maybe could have come out that, that didn't. So that's always a tricky needle to thread when you're doing something for commercial TV that, that, that has a specific uh, number that you have to nail. But overall, there's, there's nothing that I wish that we put in that we wouldn't have managed to get in. So on this note about, you know, everything that's been going on with Greg Norman since you, you sat with him and filmed him with the Saudi stuff, he's now the commissioner of Live Golf. Did it, you know, Augusta National has been incredibly particular about their image for many, many, many years, and they seem to be opening, you know, year by year, they're opening their doors to more um, entertaining content, you know, stuff that they've done on YouTube this year, this film, I know they did a great documentary on the 2020 Masters that was, uh, you know, the one in November, it just seems like they keep adding things, yet um, it, it seems like, it, from my interpretation, it seems like they were kind of not anticipating this arriving, this 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 breakout league that is rivaling the PGA Tour, and Greg to be the commissioner of it, did that kind of um did that cause any complications in the timeline of this film in the publication of this film or anything that related to where your uh your responsibility lies nothing from my responsibility you know it was announced that greg was going to be the commissioner of that live golf league or live golf whatever you want to call it in october of last year we had completed most of our filming by then and we're entering editing at that point but that's not an excuse if he if it had been announced that he was the commissioner in 20 October 2020 or October 2018 it wouldn't have made a difference to me in the telling of the story because the story I wanted to tell was the power of one place and the mystique of one place to shape someone's legacy for better or worse when they are objectively one of the indelible athletes in their sport of their generation it's the power of this place so we didn't we, we 
as you'll notice, if you watch the doc, the doc ends in 1996. Plenty has happened in Greg Norman's life in the last 26 years. Right. Um, he had another, you could call it, quote unquote, choke or failure or whatever in 2008 at the British. We didn't get into that. Um, I was only interested really in the telling of his story through the prism of Augusta. And, and in my mind, uh, you needed the background to know what led him to 1981 when he first went to Augusta. And then his last significant moment at Augusta in my mind was 96. So that's the story we were telling. As far as the Saudi stuff goes, um, I can't imagine that Augusta was happy with it. <laughs> but I never got a word directly uh, one way or the other of what we were supposed to do because we were, we were done with the doc at that point anyway. And I imagine this one definitely falls outside the purview of your responsibility as well. But the premiere date from this change from being during Masters Week to now two weeks after that, was that at all related to any of these these upcomings, you know, this, this discussion around Norman as the Saudi Golf Commissioner? It's a question that I would like answered myself. Really? So. Interesting. Interesting. Was it easy to get commentators and past players to discuss Norman? I mean, were they were they pretty willing to do so? There were some people reluctant to do so. I think because golfers are a tight bunch, and and wives are friends, and and golfers and their wives are friends, and and it's just like any other any other uh, profession. Um, if you burn a couple of bridges, then those people don't want to deal with you, and and business dealings complicate things. But by and large, we got a lot more candor from a lot more people than I expected when we started this thing because Greg is such a polarizing guy. So I was happy with the turnout that we had. I've heard you discuss, you know, your, your process in particular to the last dance on podcasts you've done of, uh, I, again, I, as I mentioned, we do some video stuff, so I have an image in my head and I under, have an understanding of how long it takes and how many steps there are in the process uh, before something goes to film. I wondered if you could kind of, for people that aren't familiar with what filmmaking looks like, describe the timeline of a project like this and all the steps that go into filling in gaps, moving stories along, lighting, sound correction, all of these things. I know it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lengthy process and a probably lengthy answer, but I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that's like. Most of it goes into um, either you are pitching the idea or you get pitched the idea. And both of those things entail a ton of reading and research, knowing everything you can about the subject before you go out and actually spend the money to, to, to have a camera crew and a sound crew go out and record stuff that you're going to use in the film. So I'm in that process right now on a couple of projects where I'm just sitting in this house here that we're renting down in Atlanta and just kind of reading and watching footage from YouTube and watching footage that I'm being sent and reading as many books as I can. For The Last Dance, for instance, there was well over 10,000 pages of, of, of stuff that I read. The, the stack of books that comes up, my wife is laughing off camera right now. <laughs> the stack of book comes up to my waist of the stuff that I read. Because I think that it's your responsibility when you go in to interview someone be it Greg Norman or Michael Jordan or, or someone whose name we've never heard of to know everything you can about them so that you can do as efficient a job as possible in, in telling their story. So a lot of it is research. Then you get to the point where you're shooting. That's when the fun part comes in because you can start listening to music and start listening to songs and auditioning uh, composers and, and seeing what you want this thing to feel and sound like. And then the editing process begins when you start actually like throwing this stuff all together. It's, it's a lot like cooking a big, say, Thanksgiving dinner or like a big holiday dinner is that you're going to say, all right, this is what I want this thing to look like. This is what I want the table to look like. Is that how many people are coming? Now we got to go shop for the ingredients. You get all the ingredients and then you start to put it together in the kitchen. And as always, that's when people start coming in the kitchen and smelling things and wanting to taste things and they're ready for the meal to be done. 
that's the dealing with the networks and, and the owners of, of the properties and all that. And that's um, a different sport, but it's, a, it's an important job all to its own. So there's a lot of components that come in. Once you get done with the fun part, which is the cooking of the meal, then it's like, it's not ready to be done yet because we have to now garnish the dishes and we have to make sure everything sounds perfect and make sure everything looks perfect. Every single frame is color corrected, which means that it's painted to look as vibrant and as, as accurate to your vision as, as you want it to look. And in a place like Augusta, um, you know, that's a, that's a playground for a color corrector, but there's a lot of people who do a lot of jobs that I was never aware of before I got into this business who are incredibly talented and dedicated to what they do. So it's, it's as close as I can get to playing a team sport. And I wasn't good enough to advance beyond my late teens in, in playing a team sport, but it's as close as I can get to doing that because everyone has a role and camaraderie has so much to do with the final product. We are recording this or in the, the, uh, the documentary is coming out here as the, on the two year anniversary of the last dance, the premiere of the last dance. I'm wondering in what ways has that, uh, that series changed your life? Uh, immensely that the, the opportunities that I've gotten from, from that show, from the response to that show, have been, you know, nothing short of, of life changing. I'm, I'm still sports is always going to be my bread and butter because I grew up in a sports house. I grew up, my brothers and I, we grew up either playing sports or making movies, chasing each other around with a camera or chasing each other with balls and bats and things like that. And my brothers were older. So I was often the one holding the camera, making the movie about them just so I could play with them. So that's my, been my dream since I was a little kid. I want to tell more stories than just sports stories. And that's what The Last Dance has afforded me the opportunity to do true crime stuff and social justice stuff and and music documentaries and and uh, eventually scripted films and things like that so it was it was life-changing to say the least i wouldn't uh i'm a i'm a decent sized basketball fan and i i feel like you know now we're living in this post last dance world but it felt like for many years there were these rumors of this this project was rumored for a long time and this uh you know it basically is what everybody wanted out of a 30 for 30 or something along those lines was to deep dive on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls because it just had a, a tremendous uh, reverberating impact through like my entire generation of following sports. And it felt like we've never I just don't feel like I've ever really heard Michael Jordan speak about obviously in the way that he does in the last dance. Did you ever have any kind of pinch me moments of, you know, there's one guy sitting across the table or across the room from Michael Jordan asking him these questions that sports fans have been dying to hear for a long time? Do you ever wonder, how, how am I the guy that's, that's getting to ask this? More often than not. <laughs> More often than not on, on almost every single question. And I think that the fear of failure is what keeps you focused and you have to leave you know, that first interview, which is the one where he has the, the glass of tequila next to him and the cigar, we didn't know if he was going to leave a half hour in or, or three hours in. So there's a lot of unknowns. But like I said before, the only thing you can do is come in as prepared as possible. And and a credit to his his people around him, they had put me in front of him a few times. So we knew each other a little bit for a few hours here and there. So he knew that I was going to be the one asking the questions that I was, you know, I had, I had dedicated the better part of a couple of years to researching this thing before we sat down. But yeah, I think that about probably 20 minutes into that first episode is when I, I said um, that those early bulls were called the um, Chicago Bulls traveling cocaine circus. And this laugh came out of him that I had never heard, certainly in my dealings with him, but even in all of the thousands of hours of interviews and stuff that we had done with him. And that's when we knew that it was like, all right, he's, he's actually here to, he came to play because he easily could have just said, oh, well, that's funny, but whatever. And he actually 
laughed, which acknowledged the truth of that statement <laughs> or that title, and then went on to actually offer an anecdote that illustrated that that's exactly what they were. Would you describe it as, uh, you know, you may not want to want to praise yourself as much on this note, but that you kind of cracked the code a little bit when it came to, jo- to Michael and as far as, you know, him getting comfortable with who's sitting across from him gives you so many of those reactions of, you know, him kind of rolling his head a little bit, watching the tablet and, uh, you know, kind of embracing the entire project. He tear You tear down kind of this uh, wall that he has held up for a long period of time. And uh, it, I, I think people maybe don't fully understand what comes with uh, the, the level of trust that's required with that, right? Of I'm going to give you these incredibly golden moments that are, are going to end up being a lot of memes, yet I'm trusting you to put this in the right spot in your film. And that doesn't always work that way in film. Yeah, I think with him, it was more that he saw the light at the end of the digging through his past tunnel. He At, at the end of the first interview, he said to me, if you do your job right, I'll never have to do this again. Mm. And I see what he means by that because he had been through 8,000 interviews or whatever it was before then. You know, at the beginning of this, of that process, his manager said to me, can you get through this entire doc just using the footage from that 98 season that we had, the trove of footage, and never interviewing him, just using news interviews from through the years. In fact, she said, that's what's going to happen here. And their team's perspective was if you interview people present day, they're going to change their minds on what actually happened. Whereas in the moment, just use their interviews in the moment because that's what's actually happening. Mine was the exact opposite is that they were under the shadow of, of Michael Jordan at that point. And now with 20 years distance, they're likely to be more honest than they would have been. But Michael still looms pretty largely over that entire NBA community, especially the alums. But luckily they convinced him to sit down and I think that the movie was better for it to sit there and see this guy who rarely talks we were his scarcity was a gift to us yeah he doesn't like doing interviews and he's sick of that process and they'd rather just like sit on his course and you know smoke cigars and play 36 holes a day I don't blame the guy I do the exact (laughs) same thing but it was a gift to us that he agreed to sit down he was supposed to sit down two times he sat down three times so we had um about nine hours with him over the course of, of three days of shooting. That sounds like a lot, but it's you probably could have gone a lot more. So you have, you know, you, you got to go through this trove of footage from the 98 uh, season. Now, 20 years from now, people are going to say, well, we need to see the lost interviews from uh, from the last dance. Like that's going to be, there's probably some stuff in there that we would- I have them somewhere. So, so if you find this interview in 20 years, come find me. And I have- <laughs> Did it ever get heated with him? Anything you ever asked that, you know, maybe he didn't care for or was a straight non-answer, nothing like that? He said, I mean, quite the opposite. He said from the beginning, ask me anything you want. And I'll be honest. They asked me, for instance, to um, email him a a set of topics. I said, like sending the exact questions, like not only is it, is it not really journalistic, but it's not going to, it's not going to evoke, it's going to be rehearsed responses. But if I say here are the topics we're going to be discussing mostly because of, you know, guys with that vast a career, if you interviewed LeBron or John Elway or Greg Norman or Greg Maddox, they would all have trouble remembering what year was what and what the score was. If you were interviewing Maddox about, you know, some World Series in the 90s and said, you know, game four, two outs in the fifth, you threw a slider and they call for it. He wouldn't remember that. Mm -hmm. And the same with Jordan, like 
the thing with him is that he was like encyclopedic and remembering a lot of these things, but it really was just a cheat sheet for him to say, for, for me to say, Hey, you know, you guys, you went to five games against the Cavs in, in 89 or whatever it was. Um, but he quite the opposite said, ask me when I sent that email, he said, I saw the email you sent by the way, and I didn't read any of it. Ask me anything you want and I'll be honest. Hmm. So he was really like truly an open book. And I think just because he wanted to get this over with, it was like, all right, I have nothing to hide. I don't really care what these people think, the viewers, like I'm going to be myself. He's got that kind of swagger and that confidence that he thinks like, I'm going to tell the truth. And if you don't like me, then fine. I'll be on my golf course playing 36 tomorrow. <laughs> my golf course. <laughs> <laughs> What, uh, what, what's the process of going through footage like? I mean, is there a whole team of people going through that 98, all, all the, the hidden footage from that? Is there a big celebration and, and, you know, that comes up when you find something in particular? And, uh, and I, I imagine that, that whole time period to be very exciting. Yeah, they, I mean, for, for more than a year, we had one PA <laughs> named Zach and we basically put him in a closet and he watched the whole thing. And he's not experienced enough to know at that point, what's great and what's not. You know if there's something that actually moves the needle, but we're, really we just need it on paper, what happens at every single second of this thing. So that we can then go back through with eyes that are a little bit more experienced and then more experienced. But when we got to the final parts of that vetting process, and Zach turned into just as valuable a member as everybody else on the team by the end, uh, just because we got so steeped in this, this material. But I would start getting, um, iPhone videos that people would take of their laptops and they would show me certain things that that would inform, you know, as I'm sitting there buried in, in, in three feet of books, how this thing is going to be parsed out over the course of 10 episodes, you had certain tent poles that were like, okay, this is definitely going to go there. And we need to build to that in episode four, because that's going to go there. We had this the moment 45 minutes in, in the first episode when Michael um, gave that speech about you know it is who i am and if you don't like it then you can leave that that whole thing about being his teammate and what he expected of his teammates as soon as that happened the end of episode seven of last dance is him saying break with that huge finger and we cut to black on that and we actually did break and i remember uh, i had nowhere else to go because we're in this big mansion and i wasn't going to sit there and stare at him. So I, I stood up and just walked through the double doors behind me, not knowing what was back there. <laughs> and it was a bathroom. So I just like sat there and like splashed water on my face and stared in the mirror. And I remember thinking, all right, that goes here. That's going to go at this part. So that was one of those temples that you build to. So, so people would be watching this stuff through the months of 2018 and 19 and send me these things. And that's how we built the cornerstones of the building that this thing became. What was it like, you know, uh, one, what was it like interviewing Kobe Bryant for, for this project? And what did his death have, you know, what kind of impact, if it, anything, did his death have on how you were utilizing his footage in the documentary? The experience of interviewing him, um, he was so businesslike. And it was, it was very much like he came in, I think he arrived before we did. And it was at his office and he was in his office every morning, like first thing. And we got there to set up early because that's what camera crews always do. But he was there and he called me into he had a little like a walk in closet off of his office. It was like this or this. What do you want me to wear? It was very much like shake hands and be cordial. But it was like a business meeting. It wasn't like, hey, hang out. You guys need any coffee? Can I get you a donut? N nothing like that. And then he sat down and 
weed his way through the lights that we had set up and he sat down and said, all right, let's go. It was almost like it was tip off. It was, this was very much like a game for him. This was almost a competition to sit there. And the first few questions, it was, he was going to test how much knowledge you had specifically of like, oh, what, what year was that? What was the, what game was that? When did I first play him? It was like, oh, you know, December 4th, 1997, you guys played in LA and they, they, you came back on February 1st and played in Chicago. He, you needed to prove to him that you had done your research and then he would play along a little bit. Um, and the, the eerie part, the crazy part was that he was going, it was, it was the night of the 2000, I guess it was 19 uh, ESPYs and he was taking his chopper up to Staples after that interview and getting getting on the helicopter. So I will never forget it. Um, we were, my wife and I were in, in the, a car on our way home um, from a trip to Atlanta and just scrolling Twitter on the way home from the airport and seeing that, you know, the rumors that he had died. And I, I said to my wife, like, how disgusting is this that people would do this? That they would say like that Kobe Bryant died. It was just like, ugh. And then by the time we got home, like it was very clear what had happened. So coming into work that next day, it was like, it, it didn't make sense to us because we had been dealing with with his people and him and, and him in the story so much. Like if you had ranked 100, we interviewed 105 people for this. If you ranked from from one to 105, likelihood to die before the thing came out, and not to sound too morbid, but like Kobe yeah. would have been 105th only because there was an 106 spot. Hmm. It was that vital and that vibrant and that youthful and strong. And like there was no question. There was no no chance. It didn't make sense. It still doesn't make sense now that 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 to speak of him in the past tense. But um, to answer the question of how we used him, it was always going to be the top of episode five. And that kind of like little nugget there of this young Kobe Bryant uh, and Michael calling him that little Laker boy and all that was always going to be because the the whole series was the the timeline was the 98 season where the halfway point of the 98 season was the all-star game. So we always knew that episode five was going to be that. And if I ruled the world was always going to be that song. So it was kind of like the upcoming King and, and, Lauren Hill and Nas had signed off. It was something that we were really looking forward to. And then it was like, oh my God, like, can we even, there were people at the NBA who wanted us to take him out entirely, which I vehemently disagreed with because no one is going to forget about that. If anything, it's going to be, you know, his, his absence is going to be conspicuous. But Jordan's people ran it by Vanessa and Vanessa signed off on it with no changes whatsoever. And then we decided to put that uh, slate up in loving memory of Kobe Bryant, which is the only, I mean, plenty of people luminaries passed away before and during the making of that doc but kobe's the only one who who we felt um deserved that in the middle of the film well on an entirely different note to close this out are there any other uh any other golf stories that uh, you would love to do a film about uh, at some point in the future anything come to mind i mean i i always will have a um a soft spot for those the 99 Ryder cup at brookline Cause that's, I, I bartended at Brookline at the country club the summer before that hmm. uh, with part of the reason that I took that job being that I could actually go to that Ryder cup and I wasn't able to go to that, but I will do, I mean, th there's so many, there's so many great golf stories. I read a good walk spoiled. I think I did a book report on it when I was like in, I don't know what would that have been like fifth or sixth grade. Like I've always been one man audience for, for those kind of stories. So. 
You have to come back to me on that. But. I'll get. I'll, let's let's collaborate. I got a plenty of ideas of things I'd like to see you tackle over the years. Open ears. Open ears. You give me a few strokes per side, and we can talk about it. Over <laughs> we can make that happen. All right. Well, Jason, congratulations on the film. We're excited to uh, for the golf world to see it. As you're listening to this, it is already out. So please do check it out. Um, and thanks for spending some time with us. And hope to do this again sometime. Cheers. You got me. Thanks for having Thank, me. You bet. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect.